Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where our purpose is to learn more about how effective charities and individuals achieve social change or social impact. I'm your host, Alex Blake, and this podcast is brought to you by Keda Consulting. That's K-E-D-A Consulting, where I help charities to develop strategy, secure funding and make decisions to navigate the various challenges and opportunities we face in the sector. Before we start, I'd just like to ask a small favour. If you enjoy the podcast, please do then share it with your network by email or on social media. The best way to do this will be to go to our website, kedaconsulting.co.uk. You'll find the podcast on the main menu and you can either share the main page or a specific episode that you've enjoyed. On Twitter, please tag me at alexblake underscore k-e-d-a or on LinkedIn, it's just at alexblake. Now, on to today's episode. I'm joined today by Ed Archer, Head of Service Design and Delivery at Toynbee Hall. Ed was previously Interim Policy and Campaigns Director at Ambitious About Autism, Director of the SEND Consortium, National Strategic Lead for Children and Young People at Mencap, and is a member of the Council for Disabled Children Partnership Board. Those job titles are all a bit of a mouthful. So basically what Ed does and knows really well is helping charities to listen to and work alongside the people they serve finding ways to build fairness and transfer of power into ways of working across service delivery, campaigning, recruitment and more. And it's it's about designing systems and structures that serve communities in the way they want and need. So we're going to get into the detail of that today. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. How are you? I'm well, I'm well, yes. Really looking forward to this. I'm just going to mention that I was a member of the CDC for a good number of years and I'm not at the moment, but I loved it. It was. I'm glad you mentioned it anyway, because it's one of my highlights. <laughs> and I remember now you told me that when we spoke last time and I forgot again, <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. They are a good one to mention. Okay, so first of all, can we get a little bit of background for you, starting wherever you like really, but what, what sort of motivated you to work in the charity sector in the first place? I don't think I was motivated to work in the charitable sector. I think I was motivated to work with disabled children and where the cool work was happening was in the charitable sector. So I'm, I was really lucky in that growing up as well as having like a big family. I'm the youngest of 10. My mum used to do this thing called uh, family link fostering. And it meant we had children from other families come and stay with us at the weekend in order to give them a bit of a holiday and to give their parents a bit of a break and to kind of just ease relationships I guess uh, in the way that everybody gets their relationships eased but sometimes it's harder for disabled children they don't get invited for sleepovers as often people worry about people with complex care needs and so we I had this really interesting childhood where I had weekdays where I was about to say none of us are disabled that's not strictly true because I'm disabled but I didn't know that at the time um, but where we could access anything as long as money wasn't an issue. And then at weekends, we had Katie and Katrina with us, uh, Katie or Katrina with us. And when Katie was there, uh, she got Down syndrome and we'd go to the park and other kids wouldn't want to play with her. And there would be a real like visceral rejection quite often and, and uh, from their parents. And that was something that even as a kid, I was enraged about. I was like really angry about it. Or we'd try and go swimming with Katrina and she, there wouldn't be a hoist. My mum would have phoned ahead to check that there was a hoist and that the hoist yeah. would be broken or something and would have got, got there and everyone would be excited about swimming and then we wouldn't be able to do it. And I was, I think even as a kid, I had a really strong sense of like justice. Mm. And so it just felt really natural to me to be like trying to fix that. And so I started in the charitable sector doing inclusion play work. And that's basically just going into play settings and saying, why, why is this kid not invited? And how can we, how can we make it 
safe space. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you straight I'm gonna interrupt you straight away because I've had like three questions already come to me right just while you were saying that but so first of all, what sort of age like when you were saying about going to the playground and other kids not wanting to play with the child with Down syndrome, like what sort of age is that at? I mean, I wasn't very old. So you're probably talking a really, really angry six-year-old, seven-year-old. <laughs> it just does, because I, I mean, I was thinking when my kids have been in those sort of settings and like, mm -hmm. you know, if there's a disabled child, like it's almost like the opposite and not just like my mm -hmm. kids are amazing kind of thing, but like generally like in nurseries and stuff, it seems like at younger ages, like, it's my experience has been more that there hasn't been that sort of nastiness that it's been like oh you know like why are you different sort of thing or you know that kind of curiosity yeah. and because they're young enough they just ask and generally you know people kind of prefer to be asked rather than ignored of course so that so I guess yeah like is that do you think a, a change over the last however many years I'll tell you what I think that is yeah I think that is a really strong sign of how social policy can impact on all of our attitudes because when in the kind of late 90s there started to be this assumption of inclusion for for children so so children with with additional needs weren't always sent to a special school there there was an assumption of inclusion in mainstream schools best stopped being that sense of fear so one of the things that lots of disability charities talk about all the time is that you care about people that you know and if you separate people out then you don't get the opportunity to care about and love people and actually once you know one person and love them it's easier to kind of extend that out right so one of the reasons why it can be really hard to raise money for certain types of charities is because people don't have that personal connection you know probably everybody knows somebody who's got cancer and actually, if the world worked in a fair way, everybody would know somebody with a learning disability. But actually, certainly 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a lot of people with a learning disability didn't get to go to a mainstream school. And so you, you literally never met anyone unless they were in your family. Mm. It's also why many of the best, like the very best policy and campaigns workers that you come across in the fields of learning disability and autism, not all of them, but many of them, are either parents or siblings of people or increasingly in like gorgeous and brilliant organizations like Autistica, autistic people themselves, because, because actually, you know, we're getting to a, an age where generations of people have been in mainstream schools together for most of their lives. And I think we'll start to see, we are seeing those attitudes changing, but when we were kids, actually, that wasn't what was in our schools. It wasn't what was in our nursery. Yeah. <laughs> the third question that came to me of the three, this is a complete sidebar to the sort of topics we're covering, but so 10 of you, and then, and that's even before inviting other kids over for weekends as well. So is this like all under one roof? No, we are uh, what I believe is called a blended family. So, so my mum had four children in her first marriage, one child in her second marriage. And then when she married my dad, he brought five kids with him. So there's 10 of us. Okay. Okay. So how many, like how many of you were living under one roof at the same time? I mean, I think that at one point there were me and Zoe, two of the boys and three of four of our older siblings. So most of us actually, probably at one point in, for short mm. periods, but 
most of the time probably you're talking about five people five children yeah yeah still wild like talking to an only child it's like <laughs> wild to have yeah. so many but my wife's come from a massive family as well so it's but yeah it's like polar opposites of like really noisy households to like really quiet households uh, yeah. it is and i think you can see it in like team meetings mm. that there are the people who are like it's fine i'm gonna get a chance to get my say and then there's people like me who are like i'm just i'm actually just gonna come in right now yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> because that's what you're used to like if i don't come in right now this this i'm not gonna get an opportunity work really hard to try and train that out of yourself but it never quite disappears mm. When I'm out for dinner, I'm always kind of looking at like shared plates are a bit of a nightmare for me because I'm like, am I going to get my fair share? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, it's funny. Like, and then from the opposite side, you're always trying to like unlearn those behaviors yeah. as well. So it's like <laughs> if you're from the quieter background, then you're trying to like mm. jump in more rather than staying quiet. All right, let's get on to the main sort of topics. So yeah, we're going to talk about shifting power to people with lived expertise or whatever terminology you want to use. So where should we start? Should we start with some sort of definitions for people who might be less familiar with the stuff? Or, or do you want to start with a little bit of context of some of your roles? Let's do both of those things. We'll do, shall we do both of those things in, in whichever order? And then that will that'll kind of set context so people definitely know what we're talking about and then we can get into a bit more of the detail okay so I suppose the easiest way to do it is to talk about what it is that I've done and organizations I've been in have done and every time we come across a tricky word we go oh yeah and this is what this means should we do it that way mm. so I suppose the the kind of golden thread that has has held together my career which has been quite varied has been a real sense that we don't always listen to the people who know the most about things. And that when we do, we listen to them in a tokenistic way or in a way that is potentially extractive and can be quite damaging. When I say extractive, I literally mean it's like taking something from someone. And across all of my roles, I've basically tried really hard to mm -hmm. work out ways to support people to to not have their say, because people are very good at having their say, but actually have their say heard, right? And paid attention to and have something different as a result of it, which is something different. And that's a lot of that happening around the sector at the moment. Sometimes we call it co-production. Co-production is a really particular thing that's about saying, okay, well, there'll be professionals in here who've got expertise for certain type and constraints, and then there'll be people with mm -hmm. lived experience and we'll kind of bring them together and we'll try and work out uh, what our kind of compromise, what we can get done together is. And that can be a brilliant way of working. It can also be a phrase that is thrown in by professionals who actually mean what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to you with a fully formed idea and go, do you like it? Or cherry pick people who will like it. Do you like it? And then do it anyway. And that's not co-production. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in power sharing and in power transfer. So in kind of really intentionally thinking about within every role that you're in, in every room, how does power flow between us? What are the things, what are the anxieties that people are bringing into this room? What, what, is, what can someone actually get done? Uh, and what can't they get done? And they're claiming they can. And how do we kind of set that playing field really honestly so that everybody knows what's in everybody's power and then gives everybody an equal chance to kind of input within that space. 
And also, I think there's something really important there about people talk about platforming. And I think that's an important thing, which is about knowing when it's not your place to speak. So like knowing when you've been invited to a conference because you've got a shiny job title, but there's someone that you work alongside who's got lived experience of something, knowing when you should be saying, it's not me, you should be asking. It's this person because they're going to be able to give you some really interesting information you're not going to have heard before. Whereas I'm going to tell you stuff that mm. you kind of know because mm. most professionals who've gone kind of through that sausage maker of the voluntary sector will say the same thing, but on that stage. Okay, so for, if we kind of broadly term it, co-production, can you give us an example of mm. seeing it done badly and then an example of where it's been done well? Because I know you're seeing both and it probably just helps to explain it for people. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work across my career with parent care forums in a number of different roles and I am a really big fan of parent care forums so parent care forums are groups of parents within a local authority who get together to talk about what their children need and their parents of children with disabilities or SEM needs and um, and they get together and the intention is that those group of parents find collaborative power uh, which allows them to influence decisions that the local authority makes and that is a brilliant intention. However, what I have seen in more than one local authority that I've worked with is that those, the interface between power and those people is very limited and it's very controlled. So it's, I'm gonna come in and do a presentation to you and then give you two minutes to feedback. Mm. Or it's, I'm not prepared to come in and meet with this group of parents because they are too angry. I mean, I've really heard that a lot. Mm. They're too angry and it's not fair on me that I should have to come into a room with these people who are angry. And you reflect upon that and you say, well, are these people shouting? Are they swearing? Are they being aggressive? They're not, they're not, but they are angry. And they're angry because their families and their children are facing an injustice and they're, it's okay for them to be angry. And I think there's a lot of co-production that does this thing that kind of essentially tries to teach people with lived experience to act with the detachment that professionals without that lived experience can feel. Mm. And that's a problem for me. Partly it's a problem because it's a massive burden to put on someone to say, hey, you know what? You haven't slept in 10 nights because you can't get overnight care for your child. And they've got a tube that needs cleaning every two hours to keep them alive. But you're going to step into a room with this person who started their job with a nice cappuccino at nine. It's going to have a lovely lunch break and then it's going to finish at five and then go home to their clean house and have a great night's sleep. And you need to have the same level of detachment around this conversation as they do. But also, I think there's a power in like people don't feel those emotions about their lives for no reason. Mm -hmm. And being able to hear that and not take it personally is a real skill. And I think a lot of these kind of co-production places where people with lived experience meet professionals, where it goes wrong is professionals center themselves rather than the experiences of people they're trying to learn about. Mm. So they're like, this makes me feel a bit mm. icky. And so it's not okay. Rather than doing the work beforehand mm. to go, I'm gonna go into this room and these people are gonna be experiencing a lot of emotions. Maybe I need to give myself a bit of a break beforehand and I need to prepare some time to decompress afterwards because actually I just need to be able to hear what people have to say. So yeah, I've taken a roundabout route there, but I do think that's a really key issue is that a lot of our listening is kind of conditional. I'll listen to you if it's comfortable. Yeah. And when you're dealing 
working with people who are dealing with things that are uncomfortable, that's an almost impossible ask. Yeah. And I think that that sort of example always makes me think of sort of other forms of discrimination as well in terms of language and class. Uh, so certainly for, in that sort of setting, it's kind of like that person at the local authority or whatever the situation might be, mm. they're, they're almost telling either explicitly or implicitly, they're kind of telling the people that are coming to them yeah. with their lived experience. If you want me to do something, you need to talk to me the way I talk. You need to kind of use that professional language and understand the system I work in and like what I can and can't do. And they kind of expect all of that from the people coming in. And so if those people, whether it's that mm. it, they're upset and angry because of their situation or whether it's because English isn't the first mm. language or because they're just from a different yeah. background, you know, whether it's a class issue and they're like, they just don't talk in the same like professionalized way, using the same language and yeah. understanding this is how you get someone to agree with you as opposed to just saying what you think and hoping and, and you know, just wanting them to. Uh, there's all of that kind of stuff going on as well, isn't there? We've talked about this before, but there is a real, there's a real thing in our sector that's small grassroots organisations, small grassroots organisations are made up broadly of working class people and they get together and they do great things. And as you get to bigger and bigger organisations, they're completely dominated by middle-class people with degrees, sometimes with multiple degrees, who are really professionalised, often who've spent a little while in the civil service and then come into the charitable sector. And so have had their schooling and their lived experience around their class and then their early career, really focused on talking, talking telling them how to be polite and to behave in certain ways. And it's all really coded. And that can be really hard to untangle because actually like one of the things they teach mm. you in a civil service, right, is how not to say anything at all. And mm. so you can have a really long conversation, come out and go, I don't know what that means. And actually one of the things that, that working class people, like myself included, right, so at a really basic level, I know <laughs> yeah. that in some relationships and in some conversations, people have walked out and gone, you're a bit chippy. And I've gone, I'm not a bit chippy. I mean, maybe I am. Maybe I am. But actually what I am is somebody who likes clarity. And so if I think something isn't going to work, I'm not going to spend seven sentences edging around it and then leave you not really sure whether or not I think it'll work or not. I'm likely mm. to say, I just don't think that's going to work. And in some relation, in some organisations, that's really considered rude. And so part of like all of the work we do mm. around power sharing is about saying, you do know that your behaviour is coded. You do know that your expectations of what people wear to meetings and and how they'll prepare all of those things are coded mm. you do know that this idea that you're expecting to act people to act professionally but also you want them to volunteer to be on these forums so you're being paid to act in a way that feels natural to you and these people are being unpaid to excavate their trauma and they're expected to <laughs> replicate your behaviors while they're at it like that's not fair yeah, I mean, class is a really big thing in our sector. And I think it's the experience of kind of he hearing people talk about families like your family, sometimes very kindly and with pity, which is annoying. And other times, like, actually just in a really, like, patronising way, or as though, like, they're lacking skills, like, oh, if we could only help these people to, un 
one thing that really annoys me that I think the organization I'm in is really good at like countering it it's because it's one of the first conversations I had when I was in it I was like one of the things that really annoys me is when people go we should teach people on benefits how to budget I'm like we shouldn't teach them how to budget they haven't got enough money (laughs) like it doesn't matter how good you are Mm -hmm. at budgeting if you can't afford your rent I'm sorry there's no amount of magic maths that can make that work but that sort of thing that how do we support people to manage the unmanageable rather than saying, no, it's a complete injustice that people have to live like this. And that's that's the message that we should be saying. And I think because of who tends to be senior in our sector, sometimes those messages are too gentle because it doesn't feel as immediate and as desperate as it does to people who are living them. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot more mm. being spoken about at the moment in the sectors and then certainly in terms of diversity and various lenses, but there have been several articles and reports on class just which seems to be almost like the last lens to have been spoken about um just coming out at the moment we've got so chris chris ah, tripping over my words there chris sherwood chief executive rspca who's from working class background was talking about this in an article for civil society luckily enough being able to get him to come on the podcast in a couple of weeks so that'll be a really good one and there was a report i can't remember who it was by but I will look it up and put it on the webpage with the show notes, which was kind of talking about that thing around language and using those terms that aren't like not using the terms that working class people would use in, as in like being a bit skint at the moment, yeah. being hard up and those sorts of things. But that's it, the reclaim report. Yeah. And I think that's the point you were saying about like organizations come up, anti-poverty organized charities come up with these kind of ways of saying it that then, um, yeah, it loses the power and the urgency and it doesn't, like the people that are actually affected don't recognise what <laughs> what's being talked about because they're like, it's, it's not the way that you would naturally speak about it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that thing about like not not being able to say, like, I'm absolutely brassic, but instead saying, oh, you know, I'm experiencing income inequality. Like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> Like what I'm experiencing is not being able to afford toilet roll. That's what I'm experiencing, like those sorts of things. And and that idea that like that there's a sense that saying like that exact sentence I just said could be considered quite a crude way of describing things. But actually, it's it's a reality. And maybe you can't talk about it that way if you've never been in a position where you can't do that. But then that is a really strong argument for more diversity in our sector, isn't it? Because you should be able to say the hard things and you should be able to say them from a place of truth. Mm, yeah, I think terminology can be difficult, can't it? Because it's like that, mm. like the term of lived experience and lived expertise, it kind of, mm. I, I don't know, serves a purpose in a way. But because it's, I suppose, it, with the term working class, it's difficult because it's you know, there are so many different ways to define that. And you can be like poor but not working class you can be working class but not poor and things like that and you can't so i suppose when you're talking about people with lived experience of income inequality and things like that it means nothing but then people don't want to be referred to as poor or so yeah terminology is always difficult i think but that's because it's a word that nobody ever uses about themselves right they like you'd use the word broke you'd say i'm broke absolutely but poor comes with so many negative connotations i think there's there's this whole our entire kind of governmental structure is based around this idea of like the worthy and unworthy poor, right? Like this whole thing about like, there's some people who find themselves in hard times and there's other people who just aren't working hard enough. And and so, and people are so worried about kind of 
being put in the wrong pot and actually all of those definitions are made by people who've just never had to worry about it and so they're they're kind of happily making broad statements about some stuff they don't really understand i think there was there was something else you said about that sort of that message of i think as you were talking about the sort of grassroots charities being very grounded in the communities they work and the staff and volunteers being the same people essentially as those being served and that sort of thing and then as organizations are larger almost kind of in reverse in terms of those staff not but you know being more from a professional background and so on but i think as well there's a i think of the organizations that grow from small to large i think that happens as well like it's still even if you start off that way then you can end up kind of changing over time and there's that sort of messaging within the sector of almost telling the smaller organizations you need to professionalize this you need to change your communications in this way you need to be kind of more polished and those sorts of things so it's almost a a never-ending cycle (laughs) in that way I guess and it's fascinating because I think there is an element of like there are some things that people do within organizations that are skills that you have to learn right so if you are going to manage someone's finances it's really useful to know how to do that. And as an organization gets bigger, the responsibilities on you around that get bigger. And if you're going to, if you're going to do fundraising, right, you can do a certain amount of fundraising just by being like having the gift of the gab and knowing what the issue is and going in and doing that. And some people are just naturally talented at it and can just can get on with that. But actually, a lot of the time you really need to like understand how writing grant proposal works. You need to understand. So there are learned skills that go alongside lived experience. I think one of the things that is is difficult and that I think is really changing in the sector is that those skills are becoming a barrier to entry and there are false assumptions about where those skills can be gained. So there's a lot of kind of quite entry level jobs at national organisations that used to have a degree as like your, we'll be able to train you to be a fundraiser if you've done three years at university, which immediately says to me, if you come from a family, where that's possible for you, where you don't have caring responsibilities, where you don't, you know, it's all of those additional things when actually probably if you're quite bright and you've been going great guns managing your local HMV, you can probably also go great guns as a fundraiser and with the same, you'll need exactly the same amount of training. And so there's a hierarchy of knowledge and people are like, oh yeah, we really, really want people with lived experience, but we find they don't have the skills that we need. And you're like, I'm not even sure that's true. I think what you're doing is you're engineering those people out of your pool by the way that you're advertising. And I'm I'm really loving, like there's a there's a couple of like great campaigns out there. So I'm I'm on Twitter a lot. And like the non-graduates welcome and those sorts of campaigns are really like actually what can we because I don't have a degree and so I'm really aware of that in the sector that I'm like very fortunate in the career that I've been able to have and that I think that's in no short amount due to the fact that I've been really lucky in finding people who are prepared to champion me and also because even though I am working class I don't sound it so actually I mask really well like if I don't tell you which I do these days tell everybody that I'm disabled. Uh, If I don't tell you about the fact that actually my parents don't have degrees, my parents didn't go on to do further qualifications. They did very good jobs their whole life that were respectful jobs and that I'm proud of them for, but that wouldn't have got them into a job in the senior civil service in the way 
that it was 10 years ago or even the way it is now, and certainly not in our sector. I've lost my thread completely. <laughs> I think we've lost the thread of the whole episode where we're going to talk about co-production and stuff, and we've ended up talking about the lack of diversity in terms of class in the sector, which I think we're going to come to one way or another anyway at some point. But we've we've ended up roundabouts kind of coming to recruitment, which I think is is a good place to be for now anyway. So we will come back to hearing about a good example of co-production, but we'll do that in a minute. We'll do that in a minute. While you remind me about recruitment, we'll talk about that a little bit because I know you've got some good stuff in terms of what you're doing at Toynbee Hall, some of the different ways that you're going about recruitment to give you a better chance of recruiting people from the community you serve and with that lived experience. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so we, I think, we're really aware that as an organisation, the work we do is better if it's done by people with deep knowledge. And by that, I genuinely mean people who know what it's like to live in East London, who are experiencing similar things to the people that are coming to us for advice or that are using our community centre. And so for people that don't know Toy and Behold, just briefly, what is, what, why, why do people come to you? We're an anti-poverty charity that's about fair and happier East London and we're based really near to Liverpool Street. And we've got community centre advice. Uh, we do participatory research, youth organisations, volunteering opportunities, learning, all sorts of things, basically all based around serving a community that lives very, very close to us. But the learning from the community that live very, very close to us then goes on to influence national policy. So what, what we know is that we're better at our jobs if we get the right people enroll. And the right people enroll for the kind of community we're serving often speak more than one language. They often have lived experience of being on universal credit or of having free me free school meals. Like people who can talk about authentically what is happening with young people who are coming to us around that, who can talk authentically around giving benefits advice that isn't just, oh, if you fill in this form, it'll all be fine. And it is, oh, you know, if you fill in this form, it's going to take a couple of weeks and then you might have to go through this and then you might have to go through that. And this person might say they're going to help you, but you need to make sure they give you this piece of paper. Like people who've really been through it. Mm -hmm. And those weren't the people that we were getting through to interview, man. We were, we were kind of, we were doing what we thought was the right stuff. So we were like, we got that bog standard equality statement on our thing and our we've got a really great head of HR and she had eliminated well before I came into role any requirement for degrees on anything where you don't actually specifically need that to be able to meet some legal compliance to be able to do the job but it, it just wasn't what we were getting and mm. we really had to ask ourselves why that was and, and part of that is that we are like quite a grand looking building that can be quite an intimidating place to like cross the doorway of and part of it was that we were talking third sector language and wanting to bring new people into the sector and those two things were in conflict so we do a couple of things that are quite different now that i think make people feel really welcome and mean that we're interviewing different people and we we're recruiting people who are brilliant and enthusiastic and full of potential and full of the knowledge they need to do the job and often local often speaking several languages and the things that we changed were really simple so 
one of the things was we really thought about our job descriptions like we went back to basics so what I'd realized about myself was that whenever I was writing a job description I was thinking what had I done when I was going for a job at this level and then basically writing that which means that I only ever had a chance of employing people like me and I'm already in the team we don't need another me we need somebody with different like skills and experiences so we really wrote we kind of really limited ourselves to much shorter job descriptions where we said we need somebody who does this who can do this and this is why and we it's a chart basically and it's a real discipline for us because if we can't write a why in two sentences that somebody who's never visited our organization can understand that has to come out of a requirement because it means we don't really know this is what i want to see here's why here's where we're going to ask you about it and that made things a lot easier because it meant that we were able to say we want people who've got stuff in common with the people that we work with and we want that because we we already have proof that that makes our services better it makes people more comfortable we want people who like who speak more than one language because the people that we're working with speak and numerous languages and we need a team that's able to serve the whole community that we're working with that was helpful the second thing that was really helpful was changing where we advertised because I know to look for charity jobs on charity job or in the Guardian, right? I know that. I know that because I've been in the sector for 22 years. Uh, people who are looking for a job and would love a job with social purpose, but essentially are looking for a job. That's not where they're looking. They're looking on places like Indeed. And so we need to stop being snobby as a sector and listing there. But also we need to be listing places where local people go. So every job that has been advertised in my team for the last two years, has gone out on the mutual aid groups locally. So local people are directly seeing them. It goes up on local Facebook groups. It physically goes up on like the local Sainsbury's notice boards. So that it's really saying, look, we're making the effort to come to where you are because we want you to apply. The third thing that we do is that we pay people who, who get shortlisted to come to interview. And that's because we noticed that people with access to money, people who didn't have to worry about paying their rent, people who already had permanent jobs, they could find the time to prepare for interviews. And we were seeing really well-prepared people who maybe didn't act, weren't actually as good, but who, who could score better, who could gain the interview. And then we were seeing carers who hadn't had time to prepare, who we really got the sense that they'd be able to do a great job, but they'd have needed to get in a babysitter to be able to have that time. Mm. And so that really simple move of saying, if you get as far as an interview, we're gonna pay you 150 quid and that's going to give you the space to be able to refuse that shift or to be able to get in a babysitter so that you're able to prepare. And, and it's not just that that makes a difference for the people who really need it. It also makes the difference for people who care about social injustice. It makes them more like, we, I've had very clear feedback since we've been doing this from people who do grassroots community work says this showed me that this is an organization that understands what challenges I'm facing or what challenges my family are facing and it makes me want to work for you more and that's worked for us like we're getting really great candidates the other thing that I would say is we're really careful about our recruitment process mm. quick question small detail roughly how many people do you invite to interview and pay that 150 so just so I mean it means we have to be a lot more picky right so we don't end up having those days where you're interviewing seven people because you don't want to make anybody feel like they're not good enough to have an interview 
Like, we can't do that anymore. We're going to be three people, really a push for, and we make that's easier to do because we also don't ask for a personal spec anymore. Mm. So we ask for four really simple questions that are directly to do with the work you'd be doing every day in the job. And we ask people to give an answer to that. And that allows us to kind of screen people's, not people's ability to gain things, not people's ability, like their skill in putting together a great cover letter, but literally their knowledge. If you've only got 250 words to talk about how you're going to do something, it's really easy to be able to tell who who knows how to do it and who Mm. doesn't. And do you do you give people and do you give people the interview questions in advance? We give people the interview questions in advance. The other thing we do as a part of our job pack is we've got a really clear bit at the back that says this is how we're going to go about scoring your answers because we realised that that was so that was mm. something I only got good cool, at yeah. filling in application forms because a really incredible recruitment consultant said to me she talked to me about a job I wanted she was like oh I think you're going to be brilliant put in an application and she phoned me up and said this application is terrible she was like it's terrible you can definitely do the job but there's no way they could tell it from this and she talked me through how people scored applications and that's something I've really tried to do in every job I'm in make sure that I talk to people about it I realized that even then I was just exchanging privilege of people who had contact with me and knew how to do it and so now in our job packs we're like this is how we're going to score your applications this is how we suggest you frame your answers so that we can see we can score you as well as possible the other thing we try to do we don't do it as regularly as I'd like simply because of capacity is we invite people who weren't shortlisted to come back and just do like a little workshop with us where we talk them through like help them to draw out the skills that they could have mentioned so they've got a better chance of being shortlisted next time and I'm not I'm unfortunately not doing that with every single role trying to kind of collectively do it once every three months with a collection of roles and and you pay people presumably to attend that as well no or not we can't pay them to attend that element we pay them so there's there's two different ways that we do it so one of the ways that we do it is we say we're just coming in so it's skills development for you so if you want to to learn about how to do this better we can do it okay yeah because it's because it's just for their benefit rather than you asking them to input for your benefit There is a second thing which is when we're developing entirely new roles that we've never put together before we test whether or not those job descriptions make any sense and when we're inviting people in to do that they get paid like okay what would you write if you had this oh gosh we've definitely phrased that completely wrong and you don't understand it so and that came out of somebody that we'd been working with who had been doing some voluntary work with the organization applying for a job in the team and not getting shortlisted and asking for feedback and me saying okay well I know you quite well and I really want you to feel valued so I put aside like an hour and a half and then sitting there and spending the entire time basically feeling horrific about myself because we'd put in things like lived experience of structural inequality in the job description and when we talked about it this person oh my goodness they had lived experience of structural inequality did they know what I meant by lived experience and structural inequality? No, they did not, because I was using massively exclusionary language, which is now why the job descriptions all say things in common with people who live around here. And then we describe what people who live around here might experience. So that stuff, when we're asking people to help us get better at things, we always pay them. We also always pay people for anything that's extractive. So anything where we're asking people to help develop a service, so we're circling background to co-production now. But We will. So I realise you were... I don't want you to miss your final point that you were going to make because I, I said I was going to jump in with one quick question. I was to, asked about 10 little questions. Uh, so I think there was a third point, wasn't there? Right. The final point was about the panel and it's about it's 
it's about really showing your commitment to local people in the interview process. It's about showing your respect for local knowledge. And so we, we, we use a couple of different methodologies across the organization, but for every role within the team that I manage, we interview with a panel. So you have a trained panel of local people who are paid to be there, who are reviewing candidates on their area of expertise, which is, is this person approachable? Do I trust this person? Was I engaged in the workshop this person was trying to run or in the consultation that they were doing? Do I feel like I could come to them if there was a problem? And, and also, did they say anything that raised any red flags with me that would make me feel uncomfortable, that made me worried that they weren't a good values fit? And that happens alongside your kind of professional panel interview. And those two things, they're, they're weighted at a very similar level. So it's not that this is tokenistic, inviting community members in. It's saying mm. these people are best placed to judge you on this element of your ability to do the job. And these people are best placed to judge you on whether or not you know how to use this particular CMS well, or whether or not you can write a policy document. And those two pieces of those two panels together, they're what decide whether you get the job. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that does two things it helps us to recruit the right candidates because you can get people who are really really technically able but are not going to be able to have a conversation with the people they need to have a conversation with and you need to know that and two it tells everybody before they step in the door if you're doing a, a service this is role if you're doing a role that is public facing you need to be good at listening as well as good at your job because if you're just good at your job and you're not prepared to collaborate with local people, then this is not the right fit for you. I mean, I think that's made a real difference to us. I, I look at, we've got a really, I'm very proud of the team that I'm a part of. And as it grows and develops, it's, it's quite a beautiful thing to watch more and more local people become, be a part of that team and step in with confidence because they've seen through the recruitment process that they will be treated with respect and they will be valued for the very real skills they're bringing. Great. So we will move back on to sort of service design and co-production and I think try and we've probably talked about quite a bit of the sort of bad stuff that we've seen happening so maybe if we if we try and set out what good looks like as well I, I think you were just about to lead on to that anyway weren't you in terms of getting people to feed into what they want a service to look like yeah so there are quite a lot of challenges to doing really good power exchange work in our sector because we are limited by the way that we are funded often by the way that restricting funding works by what funders and uh, commissioners want from services but we're not as restricted as some people think we might be so one of the arguments that I hear quite a lot uh, less now is well we can't we can't build a bit around co-production because we don't know what the outcome is going to be and no one will fund that. And that's just not, it's just not true. Because every charity's got its charitable objectives, right? So you actually know what it is you're trying to do. If you don't know what your charity's charitable objectives are, then you've got a problem because you should be working to those. And you probably have a strategy as well that says this is the difference we're trying to make, which gives you a really safe playing field to set for people where you can say, okay, we're going to design something together or you're going to design something and bring it bring it to us to develop and we can help 
if it fits within these boundaries. And that means that when you're putting together a, a proposal, you know who you're working with, so you can talk about that, and you know what the outcomes might look like. You might not know what the middle bit is, but that's probably okay because funders are increasingly funding for outcomes, right? So if you're saying, well, look, we want to make a difference to people's experience of poverty premium in school, right? Poverty proofing the school day. We want to make a difference to that. And we want to work with kids in school and their parents. And at the end of that, we want them to feel like it's having less of an impact on them. But they're going to decide what are the things that are currently making the most impact so that we know which things to change. That's completely doable. As long as you're hold, held quite tightly to outcomes. And I think I've seen that happen. So I mentioned that because this is not a piece of work I actually did. I want to mention Shah at Toynbee. Toynbee did an, an incredible piece of work led by Shah going out to schools in Tower Hamlets to look at how you could poverty proof the school day. And so, and she does PAR research. So that's research that's designed by people who are experiencing the thing you're researching, who then go out and do the interviews themselves and then and then assess the data. It's a really cool way of finding out different things than the things you'd find out if a policymaker without lived experience designed those questions. Because you know how to ask them. It's that asking people if they're skint or asking them if they're poor question. It's if you use the light, right language, you're going to get different answers. So I suppose that's the first thing is that really, really good. You can fund really good co-production and I've seen it done, but it has to be within a safe playing field. What you can't do is say, hey, come and tell me what you want with absolutely no boundaries, because people are going to say, I want a million pound zoo on the corner of that street over there. And you're like, oh, actually, we like we're not an animal charity. We can't do that. So setting those boundaries. And I think the second thing is about really intentionally thinking about everything you do. And acknowledging that actually we probably make a hundred decisions every day that we don't even notice are decisions and trying to kind of hold back from that and trying to kind of name what those decisions could be and offer a space for people to take part in it and contribute to that and checking with people that they want to, right? Because it might be that they're like, I want to, I care about how you spend the money. Mm -hmm. I don't care about how it's invoiced. I just don't care about it. And then you have to respect the fact that actually there are people within the charity that are getting paid, right? And so they can probably work that out as long as those people really don't care about how it happens. So I'm just trying to think of some really good examples. So I'm working on something that I love at the moment. Can I just talk to you about that? Can we talk about that? So uh, I want to say I'm working on it. The team are working on it. But we're working with Historic England around Petticoat Lane Market. Petticoat Lane Market's a really cool market that's got, it's like, steeped in working class history it's shaped by waves of migration it's uh, it was the cutting edge of fashion it's a really amazing high street and like many high streets across the uk it's at risk right mm -hmm. yeah go for it and so it's likely to use lose its unique character because people can't afford to keep shops open and so chains move in and then every high street you go to looks the same so historic england does some really cool work to try and protect great high streets and as a part of that work they fund these heritage action zones to protect particular high streets and that's building works and that's publicity and marketing but it's also a cultural program and the way that traditionally works is they go to a group of local organizations to form a cultural consortia and that cultural consortia pays designs a program and then that's what goes on in that area and so a couple of years back we had a conversation about whether or not Toynbee Hall wanted to host that cultural consortia and we thought about it and we basically said 
no we want to do something a little bit different so we're really happy to have a cultural consortium because there's some amazing organizations around here and we really think they'd be great at mentoring local people but we want the decision to be in people who live on petticoat lane or live on wentworth street or middlesex estate those estates that are really close by they should be the people who are telling us what the character of this space is and what art should be celebrating it and so over the last year my team have been doing work that's really collaborative and that's really natural with local people to help them decide and talk about what it is that this place actually is and they've been really thoughtful about saying well, we're not going to have a panel because a panel just replicates the way that power is used everywhere else right so it only appeals to people who want to sit around a table with minutes and shuffle their papers and work through actions and actually probably a lot of the people that have got really creative ideas and a deep knowledge of this space just they're not into that and we know they're not into that because they're not on any of the other panels they've been invited to be on that replicate power structures that they've always found disadvantage them so instead um, there have been these huge community dinners taking part place on estates where there's talking tablecloths and uh, there's members of staff just wandering around going can I just ask you what you think and then people are asking their neighbours and we're collecting all of this information together and it's been a really beautiful project talking tablecloths I mean it's literally you just sell a tape a load of brown paper to a table and you put loads of pens on it and you say if you're not a talker if you're not someone who wants to like be interviewed which lots of people aren't do you want to just scribble down your ideas on here while you're having your your plate of curry do you want to draw a picture of what you fancy do you want to like challenge us write a challenge that you might not want to tell us in person like this is a great idea but I'm worried that it's a really really great way just to get people to kind of get involved we also invite ask people to like bring photos of things that had happened on Petticoat Lane for us to kind of pull out kind of stuff around memories. It was it was really <laughs> beautiful. And out of that, local people came up with four themes about what was important to them about the area. And those themes were different from what I think would have been put together by a panel of professionals. It was fashion and textiles, East End market culture, a place of sanctuary. So um, really kind of thinking about how lots of people had said, oh, I came here and it's the first place I came and lived in the country. And actually I made a home here and I made friends here and I, like, I, I have a full, beautiful life here. And then finally a place of radical politics. And they put together a call to action and, and went out to like every local artist to ask them what they wanted to do. And then the voting for which projects would be selected happened on a market stall on petticoat lane it was a really really deliberate thing not a you can do a facebook campaign so that people in canada can be voting to decide what happens here but actually if this is a local decision making thing and we know that lots of i mean it even happens with authors now right you can't get a book deal unless you've got this many followers on twitter or on instagram and so you end up with people with privilege getting more the decision making or getting more votes or anything like that and we really wanted to engineer that out so it was literally a market stall just sat there where people could come and look at what their choices were and vote for it and as a result of that we've got this incredible program starting in november starting with a, an improvised music that's about characters of petticoat lane like it's it's a really cool thing, but what made it work was intention at every step. Was at every step when we thought we might be taking a decision going, is this our decision now? Mm. This is decision ours to take and, and challenging ourselves that probably it wasn't. It meant that sometimes things were a lot slower than we anticipated. If this had been something that we were running in-house, putting together a program like this would probably be a four month turnaround rather than a year, but the outcomes would be different. And what we're seeing is a, is a local community who, like, they care 
they give a shit about the stuff that's happening because they own it rather than feeling like stuff is just being visited upon them by people who don't know anything about that neighborhood and we're doing a lot of things like that a lot of things where you question how the money gets spent and then it's different from the way that I would normally get work done right normally I'd write a bid and then wait for a funder to agree and what is increasingly happening with the work that our team is doing is you're talking to people about a piece of work they want to commission from you and saying to them no here's a better idea and that's a frightening thing to do because it means that you might have to turn down money sometimes Mm. but it seems to be working because people respect you saying no to money because they don't expect it from third sector organizations and so saying no and then saying but I could help you if you funded us in this way to do it this way and I think that's another that's another element of how power works right is that we've all talked about organizations that chase funding and how you have mission drift because you're going to where the funding is rather than what it is you want to do and sometimes you have to be pragmatic sometimes you just need to bring in enough money to make something that will make a bit of a difference in your area even if it isn't the thing that's big enough but being able to articulate to commissioners that that is what's happening this is not the thing I want to do. This is not the thing that will make the most difference. You are using your power as somebody with money to spend to take decisions that I don't think are the right ones. Mm. Those are conversations that I don't think were happening 10 years ago in the same way as they're happening now. Certainly the door wasn't open to to being able to have them. I think there is kind of a a bit of an acknowledgement that in the voluntary sector, we might know what we're doing, might be worth chatting to us about it, but also that, the voluntary sector and local authorities aren't aren't enemies that we could work together and there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration there i feel like i'm brought into that story about petticoat lane now i want to know how it ends <laughs> you know what alex genuinely if you want to have a ticket to come along to the musical and and there are some excellent people that you'd probably want to talk to about this sort of thing for your podcast there so we can maybe work that out yeah maybe we'll make that happen <laughs> i haven't been to london for a while so uh yeah, it'd be good to have an excuse. Just one of the things I'm curious about with it, did you, in terms of the people that came together with, with those ideas, was there a, a real kind of mix in terms of age, of like old people, middle-aged, young? What were the kind of differences in terms of what people wanted? Because I would imagine like the older people would think, oh, you know, it was great when it was like that and I want to kind of save the old stuff. And I always think sometimes, often with with that kind of idea of like, we need to save historical stuff or we need to save high streets and things. Mm. I do often wonder for young people, like, do they really want the high streets that me and you had as kids? Like, what is, are they interested in having that? So yeah, what were, what were the kind of different things that people of different ages were saying that they wanted to have on that street and in their area? I mean, it's certainly true that there was a great deal of nostalgia about particularly market culture that came from older people. Mm. One of the members of the community decision-making group who also uses a lot of Toynbee services, I'll name check him because he'll like that, Laurie. Um, Laurie told this great story about how when he was younger, he used to take a suitcase out and go through people's bins around the area for things that he could sell that they were throwing out and just open the suitcase up at the end of Petticoat Lane and sell things in order to kind of make his pocket money. Uh-huh. And he was like, that's, he's like, I miss that. I miss the characters. I miss that kind of the noise of it. And that's something that I think <laughs> is something that older people were saying. Mm-hmm. But actually the other stuff 
was really, really consistent. Like that sense that this was a space that, that was welcoming, that was diverse and that that was important, that this was a place of kind of challenge of the establishment and of, and of working class people working together to make things different. So the sort of things that people were talking about, they were proud about that was happening now is like on um, Boone Holland Estate, there's a load of people who do seed sharing and they've got little balconies and they're, they're trying to grow fruit and vegetables from their own countries and share them. And it's a really cool thing. Like those sorts of things, actually, they were pretty unique across things. Well, I think where the difference came in is was about what people actually wanted to commission. And so people with families mm -hmm. wanted to commission family events and people, young people who didn't have families wanted to commission events that maybe went on into the evening and older people wanted to commission events where they wanted to ensure like Petticoat Lane doesn't have any seating on it. They were like, well, if it's a whole day event, like how am I going to sit down? And all of those different considerations had to come into play. But what was exciting is that when you get put people in the same room, like the young people were like, I hadn't even noticed there were no benches down here. I just literally didn't, it hadn't struck me. And people start to kind of see how they can make room for one another. And it's a year long program. So some of the events are going to really suit some people and not others. And that's okay. And I think you and I probably talked about this previously, but I think that's a really important thing about kind of working with groups of people and doing this listening work is there's a real danger that you can work towards consensus. Oh, yeah. And consensus essentially is everybody compromising and nobody getting what they want. And sometimes it's better to say, you want this distinct thing and you want this distinct thing. Actually, let's try and let's let's try and have a bit of both of these things rather than one thing that nobody's really happy with. Mm. And I think I think that's something the sector can really struggle with because we like the idea that we're all going to agree. And actually, sometimes people's needs are in conflict and we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared for the fact that people might disagree or that people might be really sensitive about some things that other people really want to talk about. Mm. We've got a whole within our within our conversation groups. There's been a number of times where one person stood up and talked about how great it is like in the building that we've been in, like, oh, we've had royal visitors here and we've had prime ministers and other people be like, that's not great. Like we should be trying to break the establishment down. You've got both of these people in the same room and, and trying to get them to a consensus is completely pointless. <laughs> but what you can do is go, okay, you, you're in deep disagreement about the structures, but what's the values and the outcomes that you want? Are they similar? And if they're not similar, then maybe there's like, maybe we do need to have some debate. Maybe we need to try and shift one of you one way or the other, or we just can accept that actually we're never going to live in a society where we all agree. And there can be room for that. Part of our, I'm sorry, I feel like this is a bit of a love story with my organisation, but it's some really cool history here, right? So one of the things I really love about Toynbee Hall's history is the way that the Matchstick Girls strike was kind of broken and our involvement in that. And a couple of our residents at the time went and wrote an article for the Times about the Match Girls, what the Match Girls had to say about the strike. And then they went and spoke to the factory owners and wrote an article about what the factory owners had to say about the strike. And then they wrote a third article, which is like, okay, having heard both of the, these opinions, this is what I think. And what I think is really valuable about that is that nobody's, nobody's thoughts were erased. There was an understanding there that people can come from different positions and that listening to those positions and even articulating what you've heard people say 
that's not taking a position that's respecting what people are saying and actually hearing both sides is important to coming to a conclusion now I say that and even as I'm saying it I'm going to slightly disagree with myself because of course the whole idea that when something is proven that you should bring it up for debate is a real problem it's a real problem around climate change at the moment it's uh, an ongoing program uh, problem around Holocaust deniers. When something is fact, there is no need to debate it. But actually, there are places where actually pe people both come from different positions, and an understanding of both those positions is really useful. I was just going to reflect one of the things that I think I noticed from you, what you've been talking about with Tom B. Hall is just giving people the different options in terms of how they can engage and how they can give their opinion. So I think typically your your sort of stereotypical charity approach to engage in community or their beneficiaries is like send out a survey through your normal channels and nowhere else and maybe invite people to do a focus group yeah and i think and as you say you know for lots of people that sort of, or have a panel have a join a committee and so you get certain types of people that will be willing to do that and lots of people that just aren't interested and so their voices won't be heard. So I think that's a really useful thing that people can kind of pull out is just like having different ways people can engage. So like the community events with scribbling on uh, a tablecloths through to various different things, having the market stall where people can come and vote and do that. And I know you mentioned last time we were chatting about someone saying, I'm not going to write an email to you but i'm happy to like do a voice note on whatsapp so if there's a you know having those different ways of doing things oh yeah yeah i think that's really important actually that's made a really big difference i think uh, a lot of the team are using particularly for people with english as a second language leaving a voice note is a lot easier but saying actually i am available to you in whichever way you want to so you can walk into the center and ask anybody and they will try to help you or you can send an email or you can phone us or you can leave a voice note or you can like some of our young people at the moment are writing zines in a way of, as a way of expressing themselves. And all of that stuff is valid, right? And I think that's really important. Otherwise, you're setting boundaries and you're excluding people. Uh, sorry, am I, getting, am I getting old or what's a zine? I mean, they were definitely around when we were teenagers. Definitely. They're like homemade magazines, essentially. Yeah, like fanzines. But... They, young people now are using them for all sorts of cool political ends and they're really fun, actually. New word of the day. I thought, yeah, I thought it must be like short for magazine, but then I thought maybe it's some kind of like new digital thing that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. But... I, think, I think digital zines do exist, but I don't think I've ever seen one. I suppose if I had like a, a not a final thought, but like a thought that I wanted to articulate in this, in us talking about co-production and in us talking about equity actually is that people can tell very very quickly whether you are being tokenistic or not and it's really really important to only try and do what you know you can do and you can push yourself a little bit if you're trying something new and you don't know if it's going to work it's absolutely cool to say this is new i I don't know how this is going to go and it's far better than over promising but also I'm aware that shifting power and 
thinking about equity within our organizations and within the way we work within our procedures it is very and I hate to use this word it makes me feel a bit sick of myself. it's very fashionable at the moment lots of people are talking about it and I really hope that everyone that's talking about it is doing it but in my stomach I don't believe that that's the case and I suppose I wanted to say that if if you think there's a problem that you're trying to fix if you've noticed something that's wrong or if you've noticed that there's inequity within your organization or if you're noticed that you're not listening to people the first thing to do is to not change the optics of the situation the first thing to do is to change the situation and if your instinct is to change the optics so i don't know to release a document about something or to do that sort of thing rather than to do the thinking about how you change something systemically within your organization then i would say stop i would just say stop for a while and really really think about how you're going to not make your organization look better but how you are going to change your organization to be better because i think there is a lot of distrust out there of larger organizations and a lot of that distrust comes from from people's experiences of hearing a big game talked and then it not being followed through on and that doesn't that distrust doesn't stick with your organization if you create it it kind of spreads across the sector and so we all need to be sure about being trustworthy and so i think i hear a lot of i see a lot of on twitter but elsewhere i see a lot of stuff that feels a bit performative and i think you need to be just i think everybody needs to be really careful about that it is better to do great work that nobody knows about uh, authentically that makes a real difference to the community that you're working with than to say all of the right things and get like loads and loads of people thinking you're fantastic but be letting down that person that comes in through your door and actually that's what makes me feel really nervous about doing this podcast because i feel like I'm talk i've talked a big game in this but i would also say that we are very much still learning as an organization there are still things we're getting wrong i've come onto this podcasting thing with you out of a meeting where we were asking for help to say we're just not quite sure how to do this thing right and we need to we need to learn it if we're going to live our values you know it's like you don't finish this you abandon it it's if you're going to do it it's like a lifetime's work basically you're never going to get it right and it's okay it's okay to be like this isn't perfect but i'm trying really hard i think that's I suppose that's what I'd encourage people to think about is you might not be ready to have a panel at interviews yet and that's fine but maybe you could advertise your roles in different places you might not be ready to do community-led commissioning but you probably could talk to people already using your services about how your services could be better and that is a start as long as you're authentically listening and you're making those changes like that's that's where to work from is there anywhere is that like anywhere particularly good to go for resources around this sort of thing? Because I think as you were just saying that, you can imagine for lots of people listening, thinking, shit, where do I even start with this? Like, I know my organisation needs to do a lot better across. And, you know, you start to think about it, recruitment, yeah, we need to do better there, you know, service design, engagement, evaluation, all sorts of things. So I could fangirl for you about Sheila McKechnie Foundation. They've just released really some really, um, I say just probably about six, seven months ago now, some really strong work on power and on both assessing how power works within your organisation, but just on kind of understanding that. There's the Co-Production Collective, 
I'm just looking around because I should have a leaflet over there to make sure I've got that uh, that right. They've got like a really great worksheet that's two sided that just really kind of talks you through some basics. I'm just wondering if though there used to be a website called Participation Works run by NCB, which I can remember getting a load of really good resources from, but I don't know if that's funded anymore. If I could plug something that I wrote many years back on that, again, I do not know if it's on the internet anymore, but myself and Claire Louise Evans worked on a really cool project around uh, supporting young people with learning disabilities to be activists in their own communities around things other than just learning disability, because there's that whole kind of myth that people only care about this, this one label that you put on them. Like, that's all I care about when actually we all care about everything around us. And for that, we wrote three workbooks that were around listening but also around supporting people to plan their own projects and supporting people to kind of setting boundaries around what it is you could and couldn't do and being clear and um that was essentially a guide for professionals a guide for young people and a workbook to do together and if it's not up on the site I'm sure if you emailed through to Mencap they will have copies of it but also I would say it's not something you can take off the shelf every community you're working with is going to have different needs and you're actually your best way of doing this is to a have a conversation with the people whose opinions you're seeking uh, in whatever way you can. And it is okay not to have a focus group. It's okay to say, okay, there, you know, there are people I don't know yet. I can just have a cup of coffee with this person. That's a perfectly good start. And then I'd say, you know, collaborate across the sector. I think other people working on this are going to want to talk to you about it because we're all learning. And it's a really great way of consolidating that. I mean, I just think that's so important in so many ways. I also would say, if you're in an organization where the cause that you're working towards is also something you've experienced my goodness find other people in the sector who are doing the same thing do that do that for your own mental health go out and do it today because that's going to help you a lot uh, i've certainly found like i've got a couple of dyspraxic mates in the sector i've got a fair few working class mates it makes such a big difference to be able to step out of a room where you've maybe heard yourself or your family talked about in a way that is maybe not even insulting but just as grated with you a little bit to be able to pick up the phone and go this has happened but it also provides you with that power of being able to occasionally stack a room full of people with lived experience so that you can you can sway a conversation because you're not the only person in there but also I think that a lot of people who are in organizations where they have lived experience are working on participation because they instinctively from their own lives know the value of knowing what it is you're talking about and so I think you'll I think there's some really strong networks there when I think about the people that I call when I'm like I don't know what to do about this that is pretty much exclusively the case that they have lived experience in the area that they're working with and they're and they care about participation and lived experience I'm just trying to think if there's anyone where that's not the case. I don't think so. I think I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> just as we head towards the end of our conversation, is there any advice that you would give someone working in the sector who's maybe thinking about their sort of career development? Yeah, I would say ask for help. It's a really hard thing to do sometimes, but I found there is, without a shadow of a doubt, I would not have been able to even stay in the sector, let alone progress, had I not have had people who were prepared to support me. And sometimes that was teaching me things. And sometimes that was being really honest with me about things that I needed to work on. But when you find somebody who you think, oh my goodness, they are 
they're interested in me. They've got faith in me. Do not, do not just brush that away, like grab a hold of it and be like, hi, I need to learn. Can you help me? And I've literally never had anyone say no when I've made that ask. And sometimes they've said, oh, I can only help you this amount or I can only have this one cup of coffee. But no one has ever said no. And often people have really championed me, really helped me, really. Yolanta Lasota at Ambitious and Shrabani Sen, who was a contact when I started there, both of those women both championed me and told me when I was doing things well and told me to test myself against the market and do all those sorts of things and gave me very direct and clear feedback when I was not meeting the, what they thought I was capable of. And I found that incredibly useful. Also, your mates, like don't underestimate them. Like when you make friends in the sector, keep in contact with them. Partly because it's really good for your soul. It's lovely to have people that you love. But actually what you'll find is that I, I can get things done a lot easier than I would have been able to do if I just didn't have nice people who I trusted and who trusted me that I could call upon sometimes for advice. Or to do partnership work. People want to do partnership work with people they already trust. It really makes a difference. So I would really highly recommend that. I would also recommend being honest about who you are. People give me more rope around, I'm sorry, I can't be in, I'm in this meeting today, but this room is a bit buzzy or it's it's got flashing lights and that's going to mean that you get 30% of my brain rather than 70% of it. Saying that upfront means that people are managing their expectations about what I can do. And I think I find that really helpful. But also what that more often than not means is that people go, should we change rooms? And I go, oh my God, yeah, because then you get my whole brain. Yeah, let's do that. And then, yeah, I just think it's about like, if you know something, you share it. And if you don't know something, share that you don't know it because someone will share with you. And I think that's where the value and the magic of the sector happens is actually that we've all got something to contribute. But you need to put your bit in the pot and you need to be prepared to kind of put your hands out when you need it. Closed mouths don't get fed. You know, if people don't know what it is that you're working on and you're trying to fix, they can't help. Mm -hmm. But they will want to if they do know. Yeah, I think it can be tough, can't it, for people earlier on in their careers and maybe younger. I think it's something, certainly for me, it's something that kind of comes, like you get more confident. And so it, it I suppose what that means is that it tends to be the people that are in slightly more senior roles that are more confident speaking up. And so it kind of makes it more difficult in a way for those people in more junior roles sometimes to speak up. So I'm not sure. And I, other other than saying it's worth doing it, I don't know if there's anything. Yeah, I, but I think that's a Well, I would say to managers, if you're not doing it, you are letting down your team, actually. And that's a really harsh thing to say because you get you get to choose whether or not you're out with your disability, sure. But if you're managing a team and you think there might be somebody else who's disabled, or you think there might be somebody else with a single issue than they, and they are masking in the workplace, you need to ask yourself whether or not it's in line with your values to be putting them in a position where they need to mask. I think that might, I might phrase that a little bit harshly, but I think that's me being harsh on myself. I think that's fair. And I get, and I guess there's something for managers and leaders to do to make people feel like it's okay. So it's not so daunting to, speak up in a meeting and say actually even though I'm the most junior person here I've got the confidence to say actually this lighting is really difficult for me and everyone's got vulnerabilities and I think that's a really important thing in leadership to be honest about your vulnerabilities so that it enables people to be honest with you about theirs because that's how you're going to get the best out of people as well if if people aren't prepared to tell you about the stuff they're struggling with they're going to keep struggling and they're not going to do as good work as they do if you can make accommodations that make it easier yeah, I've definitely had feedback 
from teams I've managed since I've been out, which I haven't been out as disabled in the sector. When Potentially when you and I first met, I wasn't talking about being dyspraxic. Probably I was. It wasn't that long ago. But um, it was definitely... I don't think... Actually, it, it was longer than you think. I think I think it was... Uh, when did we work together? Like 2015, 20, some, 2014 even? So it's a fair while back. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, eight, nine years, maybe. But yeah, like, I think at the beginning of my career, I didn't want to talk about it. And then I saw senior people do it and I felt able to do it. And now that I'm in a position where I have a level of seniority, I think it is quite important. And I think Dee used this exact sentence in her podcast with you. It's that you can't be what you can't see. It's like so important that, you know, you're visible and that you kind of, when you're let in through the door, you kind of jam it open and drag as many other people through it. I like that analogy. That's a good one. And yeah, I think Dee used a very similar example as well of kind of being in meetings. And it's like, if something's going on, that's going to affect how much you can really engage in that then to, to speak up. So if you and D are saying it, then it definitely must be right. So <laughs> it's a good tip for people. All right. Thanks very much, Ed. I know we're, we're running out of time. So thank you so much for your time today. That's been fantastic. And yeah, that's it, I think. I haven't, master, I haven't yet mastered the art of how to close a podcast. Like what do you, you always kind of get to the end of the conversation and then it's like, yeah, I don't know. How do you, you want a little drum beat on there? Like... Uh, yeah. Some kind of uh, sound effect or something that just goes like, ch -ch 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 -ch. I don't know. Yeah, we can work that out. Yeah. Are your kids not musical? Can you not get them to do a little song? Uh, I could ask. They're not particularly musical. Maybe just go, go Daddy, that's enough. Right at the uh, end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be quite a nice one to finish on. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end. Just one more thing before you go. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow us and leave a rating or review on whatever podcasting platform you use. It'd be great to hear what you like about the podcast. Also, I'd love to receive any feedback and suggestions by email to hello at kedaconsulting.co.uk or you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. This podcast is brought to you by Kida Consulting, where I help charities to develop strategy, secure funding and make decisions to navigate the various challenges and opportunities we face in the sector. You can find out more about that at kidaconsulting.co.uk, as well as information on all of the episodes of the podcast with show notes and links. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Until next time, take care.